There is a cave north of Jerusalem on the road headed east. It's called Jeremiah's Grotto. And it was from there that the weeping prophet Jeremiah penned his lamentation over the fall of the city of Jerusalem. In the year 586 B.C., Babylon sacked the holy city and burned God's temple to the ground. Jews who survived the siege were forced into exile. In handcuffs and chains, they were made to evacuate the city and march to Babylon. Hope had died in Judah, and Jeremiah served as its chief pallbearer. How tough it was for this man to sit in the mouth of that cave and watch the friends he'd grown up with hauled off in shackles. The Jews said goodbye to familiar streets and to the songs of the priests and to the temple worship. The prophet Jeremiah witnessed the eviction of God's people from their homeland. No wonder he wept. Over a thousand years earlier, God had revealed himself to a man named Abram in the city of Ur at the heart of Babylon. God made a covenant with Abram. He would become a great nation. God would give him a land and his seed, that is, his heir, would bless the world. Centuries later, God prepared the children of Abram to occupy that land by making another covenant with Moses. He gave Moses a list of blessings and curses. If Israel obeyed God's law and sacrifices, God would bless them abundantly. If they disobeyed, God would curse them severely. Leviticus 26 lists those curses. I will scatter you among the nations. Your land will be desolate. You are in your enemy's land. And now as Jeremiah sits in the cave, writing and weeping, he realizes these curses upon Israel. Abraham's heirs have now come full circle. Because of their disobedience, God is sending them back to where Abram started, to the land of Babel, the land they thought they had left for good. <coughs> it's hard to imagine the agony Jeremiah felt in that cave, along that road. Yet in the midst of his weeping, Jeremiah was struck by an amazing thought. He writes in Lamentations 3, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the midst of his sorrow, it hits Jeremiah. In all Israel's failures, God had never given up on them, and He wouldn't start now. In fact, it was to Jeremiah that God delivered a new covenant. Amazingly, at their lowest of lows, the great God of grace reached out to his defeated and deflated people, his people Israel, with another covenant. Can you believe it? Every time we fall and can't get up, God rescues us with new promises, new terms, new proposals. And this wasn't just a new covenant. This was the new covenant, the last and ultimate promise God will make to humanity. Jeremiah 31 calls the new covenant an everlasting covenant. That means the rest of the Bible and all of history is the fulfillment of this covenant. In Judah's darkest hour, Jeremiah knew that God's thoughts toward the Jews were of a future and a hope. Even 
Even in the midst of the enemy's siege, as the walls of Jerusalem were being breached, God was revealing to Jeremiah a new day for his people. Jeremiah 31 through 33 focuses on this great, final, and new covenant. The new covenant included three big promises. A regathering of Israel to the land that God had promised Abram. A regeneration of people's hearts and a reestablishment of God's kingdom and David's throne. Unfortunately, there's not time to read all three chapters in Jeremiah, but let me hit the high points. In Jeremiah 32, God orders the prophet to purchase a field, and Jeremiah obeys. He forks over 17 shekels and signs the deed. But you see, the prophet is confused. God was predicting a Babylonian takeover. Jerusalem will soon be occupied by foreign armies. Why is God asking Jeremiah to waste his money to purchase property that's about to be in enemy hands? Well, God answers Jeremiah in chapter 32, verse 37. He says, I will gather them out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. The parcel Jeremiah was told to buy will be a token of God's promise to regather Israel. The Jews will return, and Jeremiah's family will build on this land. A literal return to the land was part of the new covenant. But notice what's next. God promises a rebirth of the people spiritually. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 tells us, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The law of Moses was written on stone tablets, but under the new covenant, God writes his law on human hearts. His will gets internalized. God embeds it in our nature. God's Spirit etches God's love into our heart of hearts. You know, Trey Young is a talented young point guard for the Atlanta Hawks, the new superstar. Trey's a long-range shooter and a skilled ball handler and an adept passer. Quincy Adams is an even younger basketball player, and he's Trey's number one fan. Who knows if he'll ever become a superstar to anyone but his G-daddy. Yet every chance Quincy gets, he watches Trey play. He tries to mimic Trey's moves, but it doesn't help much. Quincy still lacks Trey's physical abilities and dexterity. Yet what if you could take Trey's heart, his passion, his instincts for the game, and put it into Quincy? It wouldn't add to Quincy's strength or coordination or speed, but it would definitely help him. It would improve his decision-making. It would elevate his game. If Quincy had Trey's heart, it wouldn't make him as good as Trey. But it would make him a better Quincy. Trust me, to have a superstar's heart and instincts would go a long, long way to improving any player. And realize a new heart is the miracle of the new covenant. God gives us his heart. As Christians, we still occupy our bodies. We might be young in our faith and immature, perhaps. That means we'll never play perfect. 
we'll have our limitations, but a Christian does play better. We have God's heart. Under the Old Covenant, Israel studied the standard and tried to mimic its perfect play. But the law didn't do much good. The Jews lacked the ability to live it out. Yet to receive God's heart is to receive His love, His passion, His desires. And this goes a long way. And our bodies will never be flawless, but God's instincts do improve our decision-making, and they better our game. The new covenant changes a person from the inside out. We've made righteous not by mimicking a standard, but by receiving through God's Spirit His purity and power. And because of our new heart, the new covenant gives us a new part to play, a new role in God's purposes. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 tells us, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Under the new covenant, every person becomes a priest. At first, the thought of being a priest might not excite you. Being happily married with a foxy wife, the last thing I aspire to be is a priest at least in the Catholic sense. But that's not the kind of priest Jeremiah had in view. Jewish priests were married men from a special tribe. They alone had the privilege of entering God's presence and beholding God's glory. Under the new covenant, this changes. Everybody now assumes a priestly role. No longer do we need a go-between to get to God. Can the confessional. Burn the booth. Now all God's peace, people are priests. We can all go to God at all times. Well, finally, the new covenant gives us a new heart, a new part, and we get a new start. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You see, the Mosaic covenant dealt with sin in a limited way. The law revealed sin. The sacrifices covered sin. The blessings and curses motivated us not to sin. But the old covenant never provided a lasting resolution for sin. The sacrifices had to be repeated over and over again. Yet this is where the new covenant excels. As an everlasting covenant, it provides a permanent solution for sin. Rather than just cover our sin, it abolishes it. The new covenant blots it from God's memory. He doesn't think about it anymore. Once a lady in the church kept approaching the pastor with supposed messages from God. This pastor was skeptical that she was really hearing from God. He decided to test the lady one day. The pastor told her, he said, Ma'am, when I was in college, I committed a horrible sin. The next time you talk to God, ask him what it was. And if he tells you, I'll start listening to your messages. Weeks went by without the lady bothering the pastor with one of her messages. The next time he saw her, the pastor sort of got snarky. He said, you know, I assume that God doesn't speak to you since he never revealed to you my sin. That's when the lady replied, oh, yes, God does speak to me. And when I asked him about your horrible sin, he told me that he no longer recalls what it was. How's that for a profound message? God's forgiveness is full and forever. Today we have a new heart, a new part, 
in a new start. The new covenant promised the Jews a return to their land, the regeneration of their hearts, and then third, the reestablishment of the kingdom to Israel and of its throne to David. From his grotto, Jeremiah saw the Jewish king, the descendant and heir of David, hauled off into captivity. And the Babylonians were incredibly cruel to King Zedekiah. They slaughtered his sons before him and then plucked out his eyes with a hot poker so that the last sight Zedekiah saw was the death of his sons. And Jeremiah knew this threatened the covenant. God had promised David that he would always have an heir on the throne. But with the Babylonian conquest of the Davidic dynasty, it seemed that God's covenant had been broken. Yet in Jeremiah 33, verse 15, God refocuses his promises to David. He says, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. He reaffirms the Davidic covenant. This promise is sure. In fact, at that very moment, David had a man to sit on his throne, for Jesus the Messiah was waiting in heaven. And isn't it interesting how the New Testament begins? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Though Zedekiah's lineage halted abruptly, another branch sprouted from David's family tree. Jesus was of the house of Abraham and of the stock of David and thus heir to the throne of God's kingdom. The new covenant promises that Messiah lay claim to encompassed all of God's blessings. Israel will be an everlasting global kingdom that will rule the world in righteousness. In fact, God closes Jeremiah 33 by saying, As sure as the day follows the night, God will fulfill His new covenant promises. The sun will fail to rise before the blood relatives of Abraham fail to return to the real land of Canaan and be ruled over by an actual son of David. And not only did Jeremiah predict the new covenant, so did other Jewish prophets. While Jeremiah wrote among the survivors in Jerusalem, Ezekiel lived with the exiles taken to Babylon. And he too wrote of this covenant. Ezekiel 36 verse 24, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your land. That's the promise regathering. After the regathering, Ezekiel mentions the spiritual regeneration. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And then in Ezekiel 37, verse 22, the prophet mentions the reestablishment of the kingdom. I will make them one nation. One king shall be king over them. David, my servant, shall be king. A son of David will reign again. And notice the order of the covenant. God regathers Israel to the land. 
He regenerates their hard hearts. Then he reestablishes the kingdom ruled by the son of David. Ezekiel 37 begins with a famous vision. The prophet sees a valley of dry bones. Suddenly the bones come together. The arm bone gets connected to the shoulder bone. The leg bone connects to the hip bone, etc., etc. After God assembles the skeletons, muscle and flesh cover them. But they still have no breath. This was Israel in the first century. They'd been regathered, but not regenerated. Some of the Jews, like the Pharisees, showed a religious zeal, but they were like the bones in the valley. There was structure and some muscle, but no life. And this is also Israel today. Dry bones have been assembled. A political nation now exists, and it has a strong military. On one of our trips to Israel, I saw this t-shirt. Don't worry, America. Israel is behind you. Modern Israel is a miracle. But like the dry bones, it still lacks the life of God's Spirit. And before the kingdom can come to Israel to fulfill the new covenant, God's Spirit has to invade the people's hearts. Spiritual revival is a prerequisite before the coming of Messiah and the reestablishment of God's kingdom. And that's true in both the first century and the 21st century. You see, toward the end of the Old Testament, nationalistic leaders like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah led the Jews back from Babel. Israel grew again in structure and muscle. Jerusalem was rebuilt along with the temple. The nation had regathered from exile, and now they were expecting the reestablishment of their kingdom. This was Nicodemus' mindset in John chapter 3 when he came to Jesus by night. It was the first Nick at night. Nicodemus was a rabbi, a respected Jewish scholar, schooled in the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the Old Testament prophets. And Nicodemus was thinking new covenant. He had kingdom expectations. Understand Nicodemus' logic. Israel had been regathered to the land. And in his mind, he saw the sect of Pharisees. He took their religious zeal as proof of a revival in the land, a regeneration. He saw the Pharisees and their zeal as the new heart promised by the new covenant. In Nicodemus' mind and in Jewish thinking at the time, all that remained for the new covenant to be fulfilled was for Messiah to return and overthrow the Roman government and set up a Jewish kingdom. Jesus knew Nicodemus' mindset, and he answered his question before he asked it. He said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, man, we've been regathered. I want to see the kingdom. But Jesus said, there's something missing. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. Jesus was saying, recall all three stages of the new covenant. The regathering and the reestablishment were the bookends. Jews had returned to the land and a Jewish kingdom will be established. But in between, there's got to be a rebirth. And Nicodemus had mistaken the religious zeal of the Pharisees for spiritual regeneration. 
Here Jesus is saying, hold on, hold your horses, Nicodemus. You need to rethink what you're calling a new heart. Self-righteousness is never God's righteousness. Jesus is warning Nicodemus in his desire for the kingdom. He can't skip over spiritual life. A new heart is more than moralism or legalism or religiosity. Like the Pharisees, you can major on the do's and don'ts. You can grow legalistic and uphold tradition and still be sinful to the core. Religious folks are often the most proud. In fact, the Jews were proud of their pedigree. They were the children of Abraham. And Abraham was the chosen of God. And they thought that that fact alone made them right with God. But Jesus warns them, it's not about your first birth. You've got to be born again. Rather than pride, a new heart spawns love. Love for God and love for others. The Pharisees were religious without love. Clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. The new covenant changed mankind inside out. Jesus said, you must be born again. That's more than just turning over a new leaf. Or mending your old ways. That's not just reformation, it's transformation. New birth is becoming something different than you were. Take a pig. You can dress up that little oinker, make it look like a little boy, feed it like a little boy, treat it like a little boy, but trust me, it's still a pig. And the first time he gets around a mud puddle, he's going to jump right in. He's going to prove he's a pig. See, you can't betray your nature and be something that you're not, at least not for long. And the same is true spiritually. To follow Jesus, you've got to be reborn. You need to receive a new nature. You need a heart transplant. God takes out our defiant nature, and he replaces it with a compliant nature. And to help him understand, Jesus takes Nicodemus back to the Old Testament. He explains to him, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's a quote right out of Ezekiel 36. That God will sprinkle clean water and put a new spirit within you. The new covenant produces a new person. Jesus goes on to say, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, You must be born again. Notice Jesus says flesh is flesh. Just trying harder. Just turning over a new leaf is never enough. On our own, our own goodness can't cut it. We have to be born again. God's Spirit alone can purify us on the inside. Jesus ends his conversation with Nicodemus with a rebuke. Nicodemus was a biblical scholar. He should have known these truths. Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Jesus had taken the teacher to school. And here's the master's chief point. The new covenant wasn't ready to be fulfilled, not yet. Messiah won't sit on David's throne and set up God's earthly kingdom until spiritual revival comes to Israel first. Before God's kingdom comes tangibly, it first has to come spiritually. 
Remember Luke chapter 17, the Pharisee asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, the kingdom does not come with outward observation. The kingdom of God is within you. You won't see a political kingdom until the king rules in your heart and until the Jews are born again. And this was exactly what Jesus declared at the end of Matthew chapter 23. The Lord Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's looking over Jerusalem and he sees into the future. And with tears streaming down his cheeks, he predicts the destruction of the holy city. And he quotes Psalm 118. Your house is left desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying he won't return to establish God's kingdom on earth until Israel is ready to welcome him as their Messiah. When the Jewish people again sing Psalm 118 and mean it from their hearts, then Jesus will come as their king. Revelation 19 fast forwards to that future moment. Jesus is on a war horse. He's coming to earth to judge evil and establish his kingdom. And tatted down his thigh is his title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is how we'll see Jesus when he's revealed in all his glory. But for now, Jesus is the King of Hearts. The new covenant requires Messiah to rule over God's people spiritually before he reigns politically. All this was also in Jesus' thinking the night before his crucifixion. See, he didn't just come into the world to gain our forgiveness. Jesus was far more ambitious. In the upper room, our Lord took the Passover cup, and he gave it new meaning. He ushered in new terms and a new relationship between God and man. Remember, he invited his disciples, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And today, when we join Jesus in communion and when we drink that cup, we're celebrating a new heart, a new part, and a new start. The new covenant. But that's not all. Jesus had even more on his mind. As I said, he's far more ambitious than just our forgiveness. He adds, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Hear what Jesus is saying. The new birth is a means to an end. The new covenant isn't complete until we live with Jesus in his coming kingdom. King Jesus is toasting the day when he returns to earth and we join him in his forever kingdom. And like all God's covenants, the new covenant was dedicated with blood. Jesus held the wine in his hand. And he said that it symbolized the blood that would be shed for us the next day. You remember when Moses ratified the old covenant, he took the blood from a sacrifice, that hot blood, and he sprinkled it on the people. Now when you join Jesus in his new covenant, his blood gets spiritually sprinkled on your believing heart. This is why Hebrews 10 verse 22 tells us to draw near in faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So let's summarize what we've learned. Here's the new covenant. 
Israel is regathered to their land. The hearts of the people are regenerated, which includes a new heart, a new part, and a new start. Then King Jesus returns to earth to end man's rebellion by reestablishing David's throne in God's eternal kingdom. Now it's time to play a game. Let's play the what-if game. I want to blow your mind with a very real possibility. What if in 32 AD, Israel as a nation had formally accepted Jesus as their Messiah? Rather than reject the apostles' witness, what if the Jews had believed in Jesus? Would the dominoes have fallen? Israel had been regathered to the land. If the Jews had believed, they would have been reborn. And next comes the kingdom. You see, would Jesus have returned in the first century and set in motion the biblical prophecies concerning the last days? I believe so. At least I believe that's what the early church believed. They expected God's kingdom, for they knew and understood the new covenant. After Jesus' resurrection and before his ascension, he hung out on earth for 40 days. It was Q&A time for the disciples. And guess what they asked him? Acts 1 verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Why that question? Why the kingdom? Why restore the kingdom to Israel? Why, why, did they, why were they thinking that? Well, connect the dots. God's earthly kingdom was the next thing on the new covenant checklist. Regathering, check. Regeneration. Well, at least the disciples who asked the question were born again. In their mind, all that was left to fulfill the new covenant was the coming kingdom. And Jesus gave them an interesting answer. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. And notice the Lord doesn't say God's kingdom is right around the corner, but neither does He say it's not. His answer is sort of a a definite maybe. In essence, He's saying, timing is the Father's business, Power is the Spirit's business. Witness is our business. So don't stick your nose in somebody else's business. But when we study how the disciples preached the gospel, it was as if they believed the kingdom and Jesus' second coming were on the immediate horizon. You remember at Pentecost, Peter stands up in the power of the Holy Spirit and he quotes Joel chapter 2. It's a prophecy, not just about the Spirit being poured out on Israel, but Joel also speaks of end times judgments, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. See, quoting Joel chapter 2 was proof that Peter had the last days on his mind when he preached that sermon. Peter figured that Jesus had gone to heaven for a few days of R&R, but it wouldn't be long before he returned to punish the evil men who had crucified him. Peter is thinking, once the nation of Israel receives their Messiah, Jesus will return and overthrow Rome. If 
few days later in Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches to the Jews again. And read carefully his invitation. He says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. The time of restoration of all things. Understand, Peter is inviting them to the kingdom age. In essence, he's saying, repent so that God will send us Jesus who will bring us the restoration of all things. In Peter's mind, the conversion of Israel would have brought Jesus back and launched the establishment of God's kingdom and restored all that sin had spoiled. And Peter is preaching in the temple. He's calling out Jewish leaders. He's offering the nation as a whole a prophetic reality. He refers to it as times of refreshing. Now, often we equate this term with personal revival. But that's not how a first century Jew would have understood the phrase. Times of refreshing was a prophetic term for the kingdom age, when Messiah will come to right all wrongs and return the world to a peaceful and perfect garden. See, Peter is offering the Jews a thousand years of paradise, what the Old Testament calls God's millennial kingdom. Perhaps this is what Peter meant in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, when he spoke of hastening the coming of the day of God. You know, how do you hasten Jesus' return? Well, apparently, Peter thought that if the nation received Jesus and were born again, the kingdom would have come at that time. People familiar with the last day's events might say, but what about the rapture? The Antichrist, his one world government, his desecration of the temple, his demand to be worshipped, all the that the Bible predicts prior to Jesus' second coming. Well, history reveals that ancient Rome had possible fulfillments for all of the above. Remember, ancient Rome was a global government. Any of its first century emperors would have made a dandy antichrist. And a temple abomination was even in the works. In 40 AD, the emperor Caligula sent a legion of soldiers to Palestine with a statue of his likeness. Imperial orders were given to erect this abomination of desolation in the temple's Holy of Holies and to require the Jews to worship the emperor's image. The reason it never arrived was that Caligula died while it was en route and the ship turned back to Rome. Imagine, though, the great what if. Peter preaches on Pentecost. There's national repentance in Israel. The rapture occurs at that moment. The world is plunged into seven years of great tribulation, and Jesus returns at his second coming to make all things new, oh, around the year 40 A.D. I know it's hypothetical, but I believe if the Jews had accepted the offer of the new covenant preached by the apostles, God was prepared to set in motion the end-time prophecies and establish his kingdom then. Instead, Israel rejected the covenant that Jesus made with his own blood. And they remained under the curse of the Mosaic covenant. 
This was an epic tragedy for the Jews, but it was a very, very good turn of events for you and me. For Paul explains in Romans 11 that it was Israel's unbelief that allowed the Gentiles the opportunity to be saved. Last week we spoke of the amazing prophecy in Daniel 9, the chapter that puts Messiah on the clock. It predicted the very day when Jesus would appear to Israel. If you weren't here, please check it out. According to Daniel 9, 70 weeks of seven years are set aside to fulfill God's objectives for Israel. And six purposes are to be accomplished in that total of 490 years. Read Daniel chapter 9 carefully and you'll see that only one of the six objectives has yet been fulfilled. On the cross, Jesus made reconciliation for iniquity. He's not yet put an end to sins and brought in everlasting righteousness and sealed up the vision and the prophecy. All these divine purposes are still to be accomplished in the future. Well, according to Daniel, 483 years occurred from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem's walls until the coming of Messiah to Israel. That prophecy was fulfilled the day Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. After the 69 weeks, Messiah is cut off or executed. That happened in 32 AD with Jesus' crucifixion. Daniel 9 mentions another event that occurs after the 69 weeks. The fall of Jerusalem occurred in 70 AD. See, the crucifixion and the fall of Jerusalem come after the 69 weeks, but before the 70th week of seven years. That means that a gap exists in the prophecy. That an unspecified period of time lies between the coming of Messiah to Israel and the final seven years when God will right all wrongs. As Daniel puts it, until he finishes the transgression or snuffs out man's rebellion. There is a final seven years. It's what the Bible calls great tribulation. And during this time, God will judge the earth. He'll shake all that can be shaken. Global cataclysms will rock the planet. And two goals get established or get accomplished in this, this time period, this last seven years. A wicked world is punished and Israel is purified. In fact, it's the fulfillment of these end time events that finally open the eyes of the Jews and the nation Israel. The Old Testament tells us that when Messiah returns, Israel will turn to him. They'll repent and believe in the new covenant. Zechariah 12 verse 10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. When Jesus returns, Israel will be ready. Their hearts will be humbled and they'll embrace him. They'll see him. They'll recognize him as the one that they had pierced and they'll receive him as their savior. Romans 11 verse 26 predicts that at the end of the age, all Israel will be saved. Every Jew alive at the end of time will believe in Jesus and enter into this new covenant. So let's put it all together. 
Jesus came to initiate a new covenant with Israel. It was paid for on the cross, and it was offered to Israel by the apostles. But God is still waiting for the Jews to accept its terms, to receive this new heart. And once Israel bites on that offer, Jesus will return to end the revolt that started in Eden and set up his kingdom on planet earth. Right now the dry bones have been assembled. Even flesh and muscle has been attached. But the breath of God's spirit is still absent. Mostly Jews remain in unbelief. And here's God's dilemma. He's got a good covenant, but no takers. You know, it's like the single guy who plans the ultimate date. Starry sky, soft music, candlelight dinner on the rooftop. He's got this luxurious setting, a gourmet meal. But he finds out that his date backs out at the last minute. Well, what does he do? Let it all go to waste? Not hardly. What do you do in that moment? Well, you pull out your little black book and you call your second choice. Or your third choice. Or your fourth choice if need be. And this is exactly, this is literally what God did. Don't be offended that you were God's second choice. Paul told the Romans, the gospel comes for the Jew first and also for the Greek After the rebellion at Babel, God's salvation became a family business. Abraham and sons. God had a plan to redeem the whole world through the seed of Abraham or Jesus. And that's what he's doing now. This is the mystery not seen in God's previous plans. All the covenants from Abraham to Moses to David targeted the Jews. Even the new covenant was originally intended for Israel until they rejected Jesus. And now, in His grace, God has opened His party even to us pagan Gentiles. We might be God's second choice, but He has invited us in, and He's given us full membership in the new covenant. Recall Jesus' parable about the man who hosted a banquet. Everyone He invited had an excuse for why they couldn't come. And so he told his servants to bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Don't be offended, but that's God's description of us. When the Jews rejected the new covenant, God opened it up to the whosoever wills. The whosoever's. That's us. We're the ones nobody wanted, but God included us. Don't be too proud to think of yourself as a down and outer in need of grace. The people God rejects are those who think they deserve His love. The proud and the self-righteous are the people who miss out. Today, God is waiting on the Jews to receive the new covenant. But while He waits, God is actively targeting Gentiles. Now is our time, friends. Today is our day of salvation. God is taking Gentiles from all nations and tribes and races And along with believing Jews, he's turning people who were once divided in enemies into his new covenant community. He calls it his church. And that's what we'll look at next week in our final installment on God's covenants, the new covenant and the church. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for this amazing new covenant that you've made with man. And Lord, I pray that if there's someone out there who's listening and, and they would like a new start, that they would love to, to feel that they had a kind of a relationship with you or they could go to you themselves and, and hear your heart and know their God. Lord, that you would give them a new heart. Lord, I pray that you would open up their eyes tonight, Lord. You'd help them to see, Lord, that they would embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They would put their faith in you, Lord Jesus, and receive from you a new heart and a new part and a new start. Work in our hearts, Lord. We love you. We thank you that you've allowed us, the whosoever wills, to become part of your eternal plan. We love you and thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go out with a final.